Florida Matters is supported by WUSF members just like you. Your donation of $5 or $25 will help ensure public radio thrives. And thanks to Candy Olson, an additional $50 will be added to your donation. Visit WUSF.org match to maximize your gift today. Welcome to Florida Matters. I'm Bradley George. Gambling is big business for the Seminole Tribe of Florida, and it's about to get bigger. Last week, state lawmakers approved a new compact with the tribe. The 30-year deal would let the Seminoles run sports betting operations across the state. And in turn, the tribe would pay Florida $500 million a year in gaming revenue. The deal still needs approval from federal officials, and legal challenges are likely. On today's show, we look at the future and the past of Indian gaming in Florida. Dara Kam is a reporter with the News Service of Florida and covered last week's vote on the gaming compact in Tallahassee. We spoke via Zoom. Just give me a quick overview of what's uh, what's in this gambling deal that the uh, legislature approved last week. It was a $2.5 billion minimum agreement. The Seminole Tribal Chairman... Marcella Sassiola Jr. and Governor Ron DeSantis inked that agreement on April 23rd, and it allows for a major expansion of gambling in Florida on a number of levels, including what people are probably most interested in. It opens the door to sports betting under the auspices of the tribe, and we can talk a little bit more about how that will operate yeah, we'll we'll get into that in a minute. But first, I know there had been talk for a while of, of the state and the tribe trying to come to some kind of new deal. What happened in the last couple of months that brought the two sides together to this this agreement? Well, I think one thing was that the the governor really wanted to emerge successful on this deal. But politically for him, it's a major achievement that other legislative leaders and his predecessor, Governor Rick Scott, was unable to attain. Um, the tribe had stopped paying the state. They, they were paying annual payments of about $350 million as part of an an old agreement that what's known in federal law as a compact. And they had stopped paying that in 2019 because of these designated player card games that are being offered at paramutual card rooms throughout the state. And the state, so the state has been missing out on $350 $350 million a year that the tribe had agreed to for revenue sharing uh, from proceeds from their blackjack and slot machines operations at most of their casinos. So the governor really, I think he wanted to do a deal that helps the paramutual operators. Paramutuals, horse tracks, uh, highlight frontons and dog tracks now are not racing any longer. But they have been in in Florida for over 100 years. And at one point, they were people came from all over the country to to gamble at these facilities. And they were pretty ritzy, glamorous establishments. That's changed over recent years. But the governor saw an opportunity to get a deal with the tribe 
a lucrative deal with the tribe. It's a minimum of $500 million a year over the first five years. This, the money was a really good deal at a time when the state might be looking at declines in general revenue funds and something that would give new products to the existing paramutuals and allow them to continue to operate in a world where they've seen their numbers just decline pretty dramatically. So let's look at more at what's in this deal and and sort of the biggest aspect in terms of the expansion of gambling in Florida is allowing the Seminole tribe essentially a a monopoly to run sports betting in the state. What, What will that look like once it takes effect? So the sports betting provision allows the tribe to essentially to serve as what they call the hub for sports betting and the computer servers that generate these mobile bets. So you'll be, you'll be able to pull up an app or what they call a skin on your phone and place a bet anywhere in Florida. They will serve as the host and they will contract with at least three paramutual operators who will be able to also offer sports betting. Again, the tribe will serve as the host and the paramutuals will get 60% of the split on that and a portion of the proceeds from the sports betting will go to the state in terms of taxes, depending on where the where the bet is made. The problem, as you know, and everyone is aware of at this point, is whether that sports betting conducted off of tribal lands, whether that is permitted under federal law, and whether that it requires a statewide vote under a constitutional amendment Florida voters approved in 2018 that requires statewide approval of expansions of gambling. What about the Seminole uh, Hard Rock hotels and casinos, the one here in Tampa and and the ones in, in South Florida? How will things change there under this agreement? Well, I'd imagine, like, and I don't know, you know, what you and your listeners are familiar with, but I would imagine that at their facilities in Tampa and Hollywood, that the tribe would have some sort of a sports book room or facility where people can come and there'll have, be a bunch of you know, TV screens and they can watch games and they can bet on them while they're at the facility. A lot of money is wagered on sports betting, but the profit share, the the revenue to the operators is not that great. So they're going to make, what I've heard the rule of thumb is, is that people make about 5% off of what's being wagered. So the amount, while the numbers are very high, they can be in the billions of dollars that's wagered on sports book. The actual amount of money that people draw down from that, that operators or computer, you know, platforms draw down from that is, is not that tremendous. What it does do though it does a couple of things. One is 
it brings people to the facility so that they're spending money on cards, blackjack or slots or food or drink or something like that. So that's something you can imagine maybe parties of people will go birthday parties or things like that. The question becomes because of the legal issues would this agreement leave the tribe possibly as the monopoly for having online sports betting on their tribal properties only? And then people would, under those circumstances, depending on what happens in the federal courts and state courts and with the Department of Interior that has to approve the compact, would that really truly give the tribe a monopoly in terms of sports wagering conducted on tribal lands? So Governor DeSantis negotiated this deal with the Seminole tribe, brought it to the legislature. Lawmakers had a special session that was three days long where they passed this thing. A major deal, a 30-year agreement sailed through the legislature in three days. Yeah. Do you get a sense from your reporting and talking to lawmakers that they understood what they were voting on? Uh, <laughs> I mean, it, that begs the question, do lawmakers, there, there are many, many situations where lawmakers vote on bills, voluminous bills, and they're unacquainted with all of the elements of the bill. This, this bill did change significantly because there was a provision, the compact had a provision in it that required the state to to negotiate with the tribe within three years for online gaming, basically online roulette, online blackjack, online slot machines. And that was a bridge too far for many House members. And so they quickly amended that on Monday. They met for three days. They, They would have probably not had the votes to pass it or may not have had the votes to pass it unless they took that provision out. So did they understand all the complexities of what this 75 page agreement does you know, for the tribe? Probably they understood from the 30,000 foot perspective Did they have a lot of questions about whether those issues that I laid out for you just now, uh, federal court, um, federal law, state court, and Amendment 3, yes, they still, they passed it even while some of the leaders said they don't think that it will, that the sports betting provision will hold up. So why did they do that? Well, Governor DeSantis He still holds the budget. Um, Governor DeSantis made phone calls directly to legislators over the weekend leading up to the special session on gaming directly. And his staff, he and his staff reached out to legislators. I obviously wasn't privy to those conversations directly, but one can imagine that your budget issues or your future legislation could be in jeopardy if you don't support something that the governor has come out publicly, signed this with the tribal leader. And they, as you've seen on many, many other issues, the legislature is enthralled, uh, enthralled by Governor DeSantis. Then 
he says jump and they say how high. Well, you saw some lawmakers as well saying, you know, I don't think this is a great deal, but it brings in revenue and Florida doesn't have many sources for revenue since we don't have an income tax. Correct. Um, so if we don't approve this agreement, we're leaving money on the table. So that's that's why we're going to support it. That's true. And I think the governor believes that this provides some stability for the paramutual industry, for the paramutual operators, and it does bring in some guaranteed revenue for the state. Other lawmakers have objected not only that it wasn't enough revenue, but that it's a really long deal, that 30 years in an arena where you're talking about technology, the technology changes very rapidly. And so 30 years is quite a long deal to say, to set up these parameters and these boundaries, and this is what gambling is going to look like. And it can't change unless there are some pretty high bars such as legislative action or constitutional amendments. What benefits will the, the tribe see out of this deal? What, what are the kind of the, the, the tangible impacts in terms of the tribe's finances from, uh, from this agreement? Well, the tribe, obviously, they get to add craps and roulette. Um, they get the certainty of knowing that there will be no competitors within a certain mileage range of their Tampa operation and within 15 miles in a straight line of the Hollywood operation. They also are allowed to add three casinos to their Hollywood operation. Having a compact with the state does help them financially. It helps their investors. They're a global enterprise. So it does provide some stability for investors as they expand in other countries and other states. That was Derek Ham, a reporter with the News Service of Florida. This is Florida Matters. Our show continues in just a moment. You're listening to Florida Matters on WUSF 89.7. I'm Bradley George. The Seminoles were among the first tribes to get into the gaming business. It all started in 1980 with a bingo hall in Broward County. UCLA professor Jessica Catalino has studied the tribe's history with gaming and wrote about it in a book, High Stakes, Florida Seminole Gaming and Sovereignty. How was it that the Seminole tribe in particular got into this world of gaming because, as I understand it, they they were really the first Native American tribe to to get into this enterprise and in, in, on a on a pretty large level. One of the common misunderstandings about gaming is that it's something that the federal government decided on and then sort of granted to the tribes. Looking at the Seminole tribes shows that it's actually the opposite. They pursued tribal gaming on their own, of their own volition, under their own understandings of their sovereignty. Um, And then the federal government and the states had to kind of deal with it and figure out what to make of it. It's important to put gaming in the longer history of the way that the Seminole tribe and other indigenous nations have tried to keep their economies going. 
So gaming isn't the first thing they tried. Um, before that, there were things like commercial cigarette sales. Um, before that, cattle ranching. Um, there's a whole ways, range of ways that Indian tribes have attempted to bring in revenues to support their government and their people. Um, it happens that gaming and other highly taxed and regulated uh, industries are ones where they can see a, a bigger profit margin. So with the Seminole Tribe, it started with this one bingo hall in Broward County. And today we have these hard rock hotels in South Florida and here in Tampa. How do we get from that bingo hall to where it's this huge multi-billion dollar operation with a brand name like, like Hard Rock attached to it? It was quite a journey. So the Seminole Tribe, as soon as they opened that little casino in Hollywood, Florida, they got sued by the state. The state of Florida said, nah, this doesn't fit our regulations around gaming. You can't do this. Seminole Tribe went into court and um, fought this up into the federal court system and ultimately won and prevailed in ways that allowed other tribes to then start doing this as well. So they had to fight this in the courts. They also had to kind of fight this in the court of public opinion, um, whether people supported them doing this, which affected the the legislators in Florida and whatnot. So they had to kind of um, express why they were doing it and what it meant to them. They did things like contribute philanthropically to local organizations to show that they were a good neighbor, for example. And time passes and um, they began to expand. One of the unique things about the Seminole Tribe is they have reservations across South Florida. They're distributed geographically, including in urban places. You know, casino gaming, not every tribe can make money doing this. It depends a lot on your geography. So the, the rural Big Cypress and Brighton reservations aren't the money makers, right? It's the ones in Hollywood and Tampa where there's a big population and both tourist and residential. So it's geography, it's law, it's business savvy. There's debates and um, negotiations with the state of Florida. That's a whole nother story. Um, there's a history of these compacts. And then eventually they contract with Hard Rock to build these two big facilities, one in Hollywood and one in Tampa, um, that changed the game for gambling in, South, in Florida and brought in a lot more revenues. In the around 2007-8, the Seminole Tribe finds out that Hard Rock International is um, actually going to be sold and puts in a silent bid and a silent auction bid for all of Hard Rock. Their two facilities were making so much money and they were paying in Hollywood and Tampa and the Seminole Tribe was paying so much to Hard Rock and then licenses to use their name and have Hard Rock franchises that they had a comparative advantage in bidding to actually buy Hard Rock. Much to the surprise of almost everyone, because these negotiations were very quiet, um, the Seminole Tribe buys Hard Rock International, um, and it's the largest purchase of a multinational corporation by an indigenous nation anywhere ever in the world, and shocks the business reporters and everybody else. So we go from a little tiny casino to the Seminole Tribe owning Hard Rock International, not only their own casinos in Tampa and Hollywood, but Hard Rock cafes and resorts around the world. Um, and that all happens in 30 years. And that's pretty fast. How does the revenue that's been generated from these casinos, how has that changed life for the Seminole Tribe? Casino gaming has brought a single generation transformation from pervasive economic struggle to overall economic security and comfort. That's a huge 
uh, political and social and cultural experiment that the Seminole tribe embarked upon. What does it mean to take a people, not just a family, like if someone won a lottery or an individual, but a whole community and a nation, and in one generation, go from um, real economic struggle, pervasive economic struggle, to a new way of living. This has affected people at the individual level and at the collective level. So one of the important things to know about indigenous gaming is that Indian casinos are not owned by an individual. They're owned by a tribal nation. So they're governmental operations. When revenue comes in to, when someone goes and plays blackjack at at the Hollywood or Tampa casino, that revenue goes into the coffers of the Seminole tribe of Florida, the tribal council. And it gets budgeted through a regular budgeting process like any other government would do. So it's not just like it goes into someone's pockets as an individual or a politician or anything. It goes into the the tribal coffers, goes through a budgetary process and gets allocated back out. Um, The Seminole tribe has balanced an approach that redistributes those funds to individual citizens of the Seminole tribe so that people can have economic security in their own lives on the one hand. And on the other hand, going into tribal endeavors, things like economic diversification, things like cultural programs, things like expanding social services. One of the most consequential effects of casino gaming for the Seminole tribe and many other tribes as well is that um, they were able to take back their own social services and shape them in their own image. So they have their own health clinics, they have their own emergency response services, their own schools, um, all the kind of Big questions people are asking in this country and around the world about what should government do and um, what's a just way to take care of people. Those have been things the Seminole Tribe have been actively and creatively engaging for ever since casino gaming started changing the revenues that were coming into the tribe. Casinos have really changed um, the possible ways of living for not just individuals, but for the tribe as a government. And that piece of it is really important and too often overlooked when people just focus on the dollar signs. How has the relationship, you talked about this a little bit early on when, when, when the Seminole tribe first got into gaming, how is the relationship between tribal government and the state government in Tallahassee evolved? And how does the relationship here compare to the relationships between tribal governments and other state governments elsewhere. When the Seminole tribe started gaming, um, the first approach of the state of Florida was to try to shut it down. And there was an adversarial relationship there for some time. The Seminole tribe of Florida, there's a there's some legal technicalities, which we can talk about if we want to, that require tribes, if they're, if they're operating certain kinds of games, to negotiate with the state in which they live. The state of Florida for a long time was unwilling to engage in good faith negotiations with the Seminole tribe of Florida. And in fact, the Seminole tribe tried to bring this all the way up to the Supreme, they, they had a Supreme Court case, U.S. Supreme Court case about the failure of the state of Florida to negotiate in good faith as required by federal law. Now, that also meant that the Seminole tribe during that time um, didn't have to share their revenues with the state of Florida or have anything to do really with the state of Florida. They could just regulate their own games. And um, so they were able to build a lot of um, revenue off of that. 
that began to change over time um, when the state of Florida began in the 2000s to um, negotiate more with the Seminole tribe, leading to these things called compacts. And they're all over the news right now, I know, in, in Florida. Um, let me just give a quick bigger picture on what compacts are. They are negotiated agreements um, between sovereigns, between indigenous nations as sovereign governments and state governments. One of the underappreciated, but I think really radical effects of indigenous casinos in places like Florida, Connecticut, um, other states, is that the states and their budgets have begun to depend on the revenues that come from casino gaming, tribal gaming, um, the revenues that are shared with the states. So we have this interesting situation in which like the state of Connecticut, for example, would have been operating in the red for many years in their budget had they not had the revenues coming in from their compact agreements with the Mohegan and Mashantucket Pequot tribes. You know, when we look at these gaming compacts, it's a lot of money that's coming to states. And so seeing that it's the tribal nations who are sometimes shoring up state budgets is a really interesting development in the history of the economic relations between these sovereigns. Seminoles started gaming, and as do many other indigenous nations, with the conviction that they are sovereigns who have the authority to regulate economic activity on their reservations, that they're governments who get to do this. U.S. law came along after Seminoles and others had opened casinos and began to regulate them. And that U.S. law is what required that if, if Seminoles um, operate certain kinds of games or do certain sorts of gaming, that they negotiate compacts with the states in which they live. That law was a big compromise. The tribes were like, we're doing casinos. We want this revenue. The states, this is in the 1980s. The states were like, whoa, suddenly we have all this competition. Nevada was worried. Um, New Jersey was worried because they have their own gaming industries. So the U.S. government forged a law called the Indian Gaming Regula um, Regulatory Act that compromised. And the compromise was to support tribal gaming, but require that the most lucrative parts of it have to be negotiated with the states in which the tribes live, um, which then allows the states to have some control over it. Some tribes see that as a real compromise of their sovereignty because they're in a nation-to-nation -nation sovereign relationship with the United States, not with the states in which they live. That was a long answer <laughs> to your question, but it gets at the complexity of this. I, I just want to close on that point that you talked about state revenues, and that was a big part of the debate over this new compact that passed our legislature last week. You had lawmakers who said, I don't support what's in this compact. I may not totally understand it because I haven't had time to read it, but if we don't pass this, this is leading, leaving money on the table. And that's important in a state like Florida where we have no income tax and where most of the state revenue is based in consumption-based taxation that comes from tourism. So this is another avenue for, for revenue to plug those holes in the state budget. And if you don't have it, then that's money that you have to find elsewhere or that you have to cut elsewhere. The reliance of states on revenues from Indian gaming is a microcosm of a much bigger idea that I want to leave your listeners with, um, which is too often people think of Indigenous nations as um, sort of just like other people and maybe they depend on government and stuff for their um, to get by. 
But what really Americans don't think about enough is how much the economic well-being and wealth of Americans across the board has really been built on resources from Indigenous nations. Right now, the most visible example of that is these gaming compacts where states are relying on Indian nations for state revenues to keep their states afloat and provide for their citizens. All right. Thank you so much for your uh, expertise. We appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Jessica Catalino is an associate professor of anthropology at UCLA and author of High Stakes, Florida Seminole Gaming and Sovereignty. That's Florida Matters for this week. Denora Prevost is our producer. I'm Bradley George. Thank you for listening and join us again next week.